All right, Parashat Vethanan. 101 what? I was trying to come up with something clever. I hope that worked. So what I wanted to talk about is the value of repetition. Um, so there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a teaching in the, in the Talmud, and it says that the student who, uh, who recites his lesson 100 times is great, but the one who does so 101 times, he cannot be compared to. Why is that? Well, there's, there's a concept in Judaism, especially in the late Second Temple period, where you would, you would rehearse a lesson at least 100 times to make sure that you've memorized it. So the idea is, is that the, the, the student says, you know, Master, I want to hear it one more time. I just want to make sure I got it right. I want to make sure that it's, that it's set into my spirit. So before we get into that deeper, how many of you remember the song Yankee Doodle? Now, I'm pretty sure that most generations after me probably don't. Um, if you do, kol hakavod. But it's a, it's a very deeply rooted cultural song. Uh, Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. Now, when you're a kid, you know, I mean, what are you thinking? Elbows, the, you know, the little noodle elbows going up there. And it's like, okay, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe, they, maybe he stuck the feather in the elbow. Well, the problem is, is the feather's not going to bend into that elbow. So one of them is going to break. These are the things that went on in my head as a kid going, I really don't understand what this is, but hey, I'll sing it, you know. So how many of you know what it means, what macaroni means? Show of hands. Now, if, if you've heard Lancaster's teaching, that's cheating. Uh, <laughs> okay, so I'm going to fill you in. Macaroni was a style of dress back then. And basically it was kind of like a suit and tie, if you will. It was dressing up, but it was a style. And, and I think the, if I remember right, the implication was he was dirt poor, but he was going to do his best anyway. And if the best he had to do was, you know, get the feather in the cap, hey, it's close enough. But so why is that important? Well, it's part of our history. Now, yeah, it's, it's nice to know the song and to sing the song. It's just part of our culture here in America. But it, it kind of helps if you know what it means to make it solidify. And even though that's maybe not that important, it's, it's kind of good to know. Otherwise, you have this idea of dude having mac and cheese on his hat. So, uh, so there, are another, there are another couple of things that I want to share uh, that are either little known or even forgotten facts about our history here in America. So there are key players in the American Revolution that were um, something that the 1619 Project wouldn't be fond of, and that is they were black. They were absolutely pivotal to our nation becoming what it is. So the first person I want to talk about is Crispus Attucks. Crispus Attucks was, uh, and there's some sources that vary, but what I found to seem to be the more dominant idea was that he actually purchased his own freedom. He was, he was uh, black and Native American. So he was, uh, they, they called him mixed, I guess. Um, but he bought his own freedom. He was a sailor and a rope maker. He was considered the first martyr of the Boston Massacre. Um, and of course, according to Samuel Adams, great beer, um, he, was the, uh, he was the first martyr of the revolution. He took two shots to the chest before he went down. And it, it basically, what it was, was um, a, a red coat didn't want to pay his cleaning bill. And it started a ruckus 
and that was just the last straw for the, for the villagers, and he just happened to be in port at the time, and he decided to join them. And so he was going to make sure, listen, you guys aren't going to keep trampling on us like this. And uh, he took two shots before he went down. But that started, that started what became the American Revolution. The next person who is one of my personal heroes in, in a lot of ways, James Armistead Lafayette. Uh, James Armistead Lafayette uh, was a, obviously, a black man. He was, he was a slave. Um, he was born around 1748. There's some disagreements. Passed away 1830 or 1832. His, his owner, uh, whose last name was Armistead, uh, was an ardent patriot. He taught him to read and write. He was our first double agent. So he chose, uh, he chose to refuse the offer of freedom for serving the British and instead joined the Continental Army. He posed as a runaway slave and served as a courier. He fed false Continental intelligence to the British. He moved from camp to camp, overhearing troop embattlement movements and prepared written reports to General Lafayette, who was his commanding officer. So did you, he could read and write. He was quite literate, quite intelligent. So he actually is the one who obtained the key information leading to the British defeat at Yorktown in 1781. He heard about the reinforcements coming from, from, uh, uh, from the British Empire. And at that point, the Navy, the Continental Navy, was able to intercept and blockade so they couldn't bring in reinforcements. But see, nobody thought anything of it. He's just a slave. What would he know? I guess the British didn't know he, could, he was literate. And, and the thing was, is the, in the British camps, they were talking about movements so openly, he, all he had to do was simply walk by and could hear what they were going to do. So he was the most instrumental part that led to our freedom. Were it not for him, and, and, and the thing is, let's think about this for a minute. The British offered freedom. Just serve us. And he's like, you know what? I may not be free when this is over but I'm going to fight for this nation because I believe in it. So afterwards, uh, with the help of his owner, and we use that term loosely, uh, the governor of Virginia signed the legislation that was passed by both houses of, of uh, Congress in Virginia um, and granted him his freedom in 1787. And now there are sources say that he married at least twice. He had children. He acquired four. to swallows, then he bought slaves. Um, uh, and then he also received an annual pension as a veteran of the Revolutionary War and became a very, uh, well, fairly wealthy farmer. Uh, so in 1824, he happened to see uh, his general Lafayette had come back from France and was visiting. And he happened to see him in the crowd. And General Lafayette ran towards um, ran towards James and embraced him as a brother. It's a fellow uh, hero. They were men. They were soldiers. I think that's amazing. So also, as I've talked about in the past, slavery was nearly abolished in the Declaration of Independence. So this is what the first draft said. 
He, the king, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery to another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This uh, piratical, I think that's how you say that, piratical warfare, the uh, opprobrium of infidel powers is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this uh, execrable, execrable commerce. And that this assemblage of honors might, uh, excuse me, might want no fact to distinguish die. He is now uh, exciting those very people to rise in arms against us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them and murdering the people upon whom he has uh, obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. So that's, that was his opinion on the matter. Uh, and as I talked about, I don't know, a couple years ago, there were only two colonies that didn't agree with that verbiage. And it was uh, South Carolina and Georgia. They, uh, they were the uh, sole providers of cotton in the United States. And so they, they needed their slaves, supposedly. So, but, the, and, and like I said, if you, if you go back and you read the Declaration of Independence, it actually, the heading is the unanimous declaration. So that means that everyone had to agree so up until this, though, uh, up, or rather up until the point that they uh, were able to figure out a way to grow cotton in the South in general, slavery was dying. In fact, a lot of states, as they were coming into the Union, if, they were, if their neighbors were freed states that didn't allow slavery, a condition of them coming into the Union was you also had to be a state that didn't allow slavery, or you could not join the Union. It was that simple. So up until they figured out a way to grow cotton in other areas in the South, this was, this was going away and it was almost obliterated. And then when they figured out how to grow cotton, it made a major uptick. A lot of people in the South were really liking the Victorian lifestyle that they were seeing in Great Britain. And uh, as they called it, antebellum lifestyle, they, they created an oligarchy under the auspices of slavery. Not, not cool. But we almost succeeded and then it made a drastic turn for the worst. So why am I getting into politics in a sermon? After all, these are the, you know, the two forbidden things you never talk about, right? Religion and politics. And they're, they're the two things that, are, that I'm most passionate about. This is our true story, our past, and with it, the potential course of our future as a nation. However, because we do not know this past, we're making terrible mistakes based on an adulterated version, a different story, a different past, therefore a different future. BLM, 1619 Project, Systemic Racism, KKK, Aryan Nations, or excuse me, Aryan Nation, Antifa, Public Schools and Universities, a history of Supreme Court legislating from the bench, same-sex marriage, abortion, Obamacare, weak congressional authority, an extreme executive overreach. All of this because we do not know our history. 
and we, uh, and we became a nation less than 250 years ago. Maybe we heard this information before in school, but we left it there and have forgotten it. So imagine how far we have fallen from 3,500 years of biblical principle. As Hillel said, and I quoted earlier, one who reviews his studies 100 times is not comparable to the one who reviews his studies 101 times. So now to the biblical side. We got the political side out of the way. So now to the biblical side. The Hebrew name for Deuteronomy is Devarim. It just means words. Uh, but the Greek actually teaches something important about what the, uh, what the rabbis saw Deuteronomy, which is where the name came from, was from the Septuagint. Uh, Deutero is Greek. It, uh, it can have, you know, somewhat different meaning, but generally means second or next. Uh, another meaning is repeat. And then, of course, nomos is law. So uh, the way you might say that in Hebrew would be Mishneh Torah, the repeating or the retelling of the, of the law. So why am I bringing this up? Well, let's take a look inside. If we look at, uh, as you may or may not know, and if not, you'll know now, um, the uh, Ten Commandments are repeated in this portion, but they're not exactly the same. So we're going to talk about the differences and then maybe why uh, Moshe added to, right? He was, he, was the first, uh, he was the first rabbi to add to. So in Exodus 20, this is where we find the Ten Commandments the first time. So Exodus 20 says, uh, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Excuse me. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock or sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth sea and all that is in them, and rested on the, Sabbath, on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Deuteronomy 5 says something very different. Observe the Sabbath day. It doesn't say remember. It says observe and keep it holy. And then he adds, as the Lord commanded you. And then the rest of it's the same until you get right after the female servant. It says, or your ox, or your donkey, or your livestock. And then it also says, it also adds at the end that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out there with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. There they go, adding to, right? And then uh, also the fifth commandment is to honor your father and your mother. So in Exodus 20, it says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Deuteronomy 5, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then uh, let's see, this is uh, the last commandment, I think. Uh, in Exodus 20, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife uh, or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or uh, anything that is your neighbor's. Listen to this one carefully. This one's probably the most notable difference, I think. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The other one said your neighbor's house. 
And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, or his female servant, or his donkey, or his ox, or anything that is your neighbor's. So Moses is changing and adding to the law in Deuteronomy. So why? Why is it different? Why didn't he just give it to us verbatim? Because he's retelling the story for the sake of the hearer. Um, a good teacher is one who is able to take what has been said and communicate it in a way that the students can absorb it, to make it relatable. And he's reminding them, listen, I'm not just telling you this. God said to do this. So he's inserting the, it at certain points, as the Lord commanded you. And then he's giving some of the reasons why, that you're going to actually receive blessing for doing this. So like macaroni, it is not enough to know it. We must understand it, and it has to be relatable. But we don't change the message. We just change how it's delivered. So in Deuteronomy 6 and 11, we have the Shema. We also have more on symbols. You, you, don't, you, you seem kind of hinted at in other places, but they really are talked about more so in Deuteronomy. So tzitzit, the tassels. It actually says in this portion, I believe it is, it actually says that there's supposed to be four of them, and they're supposed to be attached to the four corners of your garment. It doesn't actually say that in Exodus. It just says that you are to make them and attach them to the fringes. So it gives a little more specificity. There we go. So my tarang is tarak. All right, and then uh, it also talks about mezuzot, so the, the scriptures that are put on the doorposts. And it also gives more details about tefillin. It reminds us to bind the word of God on our head and on our hands. We see more and more reminders in Deuteronomy to teach our children more about obedience and how it relates to the living in the land. All of these things are, are very important. It didn't make much sense, perhaps, to talk about these things for the generation that was going to wander in the wilderness, to make it quite so relatable uh, for that, because they weren't going to enter into the land. But now we see, as Moses is teaching his, his people uh, before he passes away, he is, he is tying those commandments to the land. As you read in Deuteronomy 6 and in Deuteronomy 11, it's actually more so in Deuteronomy 11, it talks about by you walking in God's ways, that he's going to provide grass for your cattle. They are going to eat, and you're going to be able to, to consume them, and it will be well with everybody if you walk in God's ways. But if you don't, he's going to close up the heavens. There won't be rain. The land will not yield its crops. So it's important that we pass this information on to our children. It's important that we make it relatable to them, that they have their why. And that means that we need to understand these principles and these concepts so that we can teach them in a way that they can absorb it, that can be relatable to them and meaningful, not just because I said so. Uh, intelligent children are not going to follow that line of reasoning. Uh, you know, if, if, they're, if they're loyal and just obedient kids, sure. But the ones that are movers and the shakers, they're going to have to have a reason to walk in God's ways. It's going to have to be meaningful to them. 
It will have to be something they internalize, not just repeat. Otherwise, what we see in, in the religious world and in the political world is that they start creating a different why in a different direction that is very destructive. Um, the Judeo-Christian values cannot be, cannot be replicated by some other principle. You cannot remove God from our land. You cannot remove God from our scriptures and from our morality. Otherwise, you'll create a new morality. And that morality will be very self-serving. I mean, and, and for lack of a better term, Marxism is the best explanation for that. Why? We've, you know, if you read the Communist Manifesto, he says, you know, we have risen above the natural law to create and cultivate a more perfect society. Yeah, how did that work out for the Russians? There, Marxism is responsible for more deaths in Russia than anywhere else in the world. And Marxism is actually responsible for more deaths around the world than any other discipline in the world. So I'm going to say that's not good. And what, what happened? What did they do? They removed God. They removed the care of the orphan and the widow. They removed the care of the infirm. They're a drain on society. And not only that, if you don't follow exactly, exactly what we want you to follow, if you don't say the right things, if you don't uh, use, uh, what, what was it in, uh, in Orwell? It was uh, like truth speak or double speak. No, it was double speak. So, you know, on the one hand, let's, uh, let's make sure that we, we tell the truth that we are told to tell. And God forbid you ever rise to a position to be a potential threat. Even the best, if you look at, you look at Stalin and, and Lenin and you look at the, the men in their own cabinet that they assassinated because they were afraid of them. That doesn't sound like a better lifestyle. That doesn't sound like a better morality. That doesn't sound like a better society. So we have to instill the principles of Judeo-Christian values and we cannot allow them to be removed from our culture because if we do, that's where we're headed. That's the natural course. Um, as I've shared before in our Torah club, if you want to know what uh, walking away from wisdom looks like, look at Canada. Their doctors are prescribing death for people who are living a less, uh, a less than comfortable life. Because ultimately they're a drain on society. They're not giving them the option of euthanization. They are telling them, you are going to die. Get your fares in order. This is the prescription. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the Caesar once complained to the Senate how this uh, superstitious people, these godless people, as they said, take care of their infirm and their widows and their orphans. How awful. But ladies and gentlemen, if you remove Judeo-Christian values, that's what you get. And how does this happen? By us remaining silent not taking a stand, not getting involved in our local government and telling them, you know what, no, you're not going to teach my children that garbage. And if you don't like them, vote them out. God willing, we'll let God sort that part out. But I, I can't, I can't stress, that has been so heavy on my heart as I've watched our culture spiral out of control in these last just few years. And thank God we have got a lot of people that are saying no. We need to continue to do that because this is our world too. 
We're not just passing through. That's nonsense. Hashem created this planet for us to live on. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I give you all of this. Now, elevate it. Draw it close to me. Make it meaningful. And the only way we can do that is standing our grounds and not allowing Marxist worldviews to take over, removing God from our culture. We cannot allow that. So what we'll, what we'll look at um, next is we see that obedience relates to living in the land, that God continues to remind them through Moses' teaching about how the land will bless them, how the land will sustain them. And we're going to talk about that next Shabbat. So, Shabbat Shalom.